From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Republicans have made the teaching of American history a key battleground in their culture war against Democrats in the upcoming elections, especially the history of the American Revolution, 1776 and all that. Historian Eric Foner will comment. But first, how people can change and why we care. Rebecca Solnit will explain in a minute. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Why did we stop believing that people can change? Don't we want people who did bad things, who harmed others, to understand the damage they caused and to acknowledge it and make reparations? For comment, we turn to Rebecca Solnit. She, of course, is an award-winning writer, a columnist now for The Guardian. She's also written for The Nation. She's probably best known for the book Men Explain Things to Me. Her two dozen other books include, most recently, Orwell's Roses. It's a book about politics and pleasure. We talked about it here. Rebecca Solnit, welcome back. Hello, John. Well, you have a friend named Jarvis Masters. He's been in San Quentin for 41 years. Most of that time he's been on death row, and he has a remarkable story of personal transformation. Yeah, and I want to make clear Jarvis's story is distinctive, but nobody should be on death row because death row shouldn't exist. This isn't a piece about prison politics, which is another subject. But yeah, but Jarvis went in there as an angry teenager who'd had an incredibly hard life and like picked up a gun or was handed a gun when he got out of foster care and told to like, well, since you have no means to make a living, come help us with these armed robberies. So Jarvis went to prison for armed robbery, it was sent to San Quentin at 19. And while he was there, when he was in his mid twenties, he was framed for or wrongly accused of sharpening a weapon with which a guard was murdered. And actually, it's quite a remarkable story. The writer Melody Irma Child Chavez, who who I met after I'd been very moved by a book where she describes her triple journey of becoming a death penalty defense investigator, a Buddhist, and, uh, you know, very involved in her own neighborhood during the crack epidemic in Berkeley. But she was assigned to Jarvis's case and she taught him what she was just learning, which is kind of Buddhist practice, meditation, ways to deal with angst and trauma and anger. And then he sent away and got connected to Tibetan Buddhists and became quite a renowned Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. A very famous Lama came and he took, uh, the, took vows from him you know, kind of vows of not harming, ethical vows. Pema Chodron, the famous Buddhist writer, who he calls mom, drops by whenever she's in the Bay Area and has written about him. And so he actually became a person who's done a huge amount of good. He's written a couple of books. He, get, You know, he's been a confidant and a peacekeeper, a diffuser of potential violence in uh, in prison, and also somebody who's been really 
able to reach a lot of kids and young people. He gets letters all the time and stuff like that. So he's become a complete mensch. The kid who entered San Quentin has been replaced by a guy who just turned 60, who is remarkable. As he said to me when I first met him, I'm crazy for not being crazy. And death row <laughs> is a really noisy, scary, difficult place to be. And yet he's funny and cheerful and uh, has somehow managed to keep a sense of hope and to build a remarkable life with a lot of friendships outside prison, a creative life, a spiritual life. But the prison system seems, of course, totally uninterested in this. I understand that when his case came up for review by the California Supreme Court in 2016, the judge's written decision brought up things he had done as a child in California's foster care and juvenile justice systems. Uh, let's talk about that. And I was shocked when I read the opinion because either he's guilty or he's not. And they brought all this completely irrelevant stuff in as though they were judging his character. And they were judging his character in his mid-50s based on things he'd done as a kid. And like, I shoplifted as a kid, but I wasn't involved in the California juvenile justice system, so it's not on my record. And so the shock, there was two shocks for me. One is One of which is that they even thought that was legitimate to bring up. And the other thing was, essentially, he'd been in a kind of prison system. He'd been under the supervision of the state of California since he was a small child. So he, there was a record for crummy stuff he did when he was a kid. But it's such a ridiculous account. It even describes him taking a small amount of change from another boy and giving it back. And like, this is a death penalty case. You, you, you think this thing he did as a kid is somehow relevant? And there's other things about his childhood that might be relevant in this situation. Yeah, no, he had an utterly horrific childhood. He grew up in Long Beach with a mother who was a dealer and sex worker and a lot of violence, a profound neglect, near starvation, a sibling who died possibly from that neglect before he was taken into foster care when he was still quite small. And he had one good foster placement. And then when that wonderful old couple aged out of being caregivers. He got put in a series of incredibly abusive homes. And when he ran away was when he ran away was put in the juvenile justice system where the guards used him as a gladiator, tortured him and other boys. And he was severely, severely abused. So I found the Supreme Court decision interesting in that they held him responsible for things he'd done, but they somehow didn't hold the system they're part of responsible in any way for what they'd done to him. So there's always a question of like, who's who's blamed, who's held accountable, but who also can sort of say like, oh, we're not like that anymore and walk away. So the so-called justice system has refused to recognize the transformation of, of Jarvis. And it's not just the prisons. Uh, we don't seem to be able to recognize other kinds of transformations in, in lots of other areas, including uh, uh, politics. We put a tremendous amount of energy and work into trying to convince people, for example, Trump supporters, that they should change their minds about him and about the world. But then we accuse people who did change their minds of having had disreputable pasts, of having said things that disqualify them from our support. It's easy for people like 
you and me to hold progressive positions, especially if you've always been on the left, but it's very hard to change your mind. It's hard to admit you've been wrong. We want Republicans to change their minds and we should appreciate it when they do, not condemn them for having held positions they have abandoned. I think you know some relevant examples of this problem. Oh my God, do I ever. Of course, there's Elizabeth Warren who was born into a conservative you know, Oklahoma family and was just reflexively a Republican as a young woman. And I think she deserves a lot of credit for looking at the data herself and realizing that poor people were getting screwed, poverty was being produced through the systems um, of government and becoming one of the country's leading progressive figures. But you you know, the, the Republican past was constantly brought up by people who preferred other candidates in 2020. You know, and I feel like people who've actually changed deserve more credit. Like I, you and I were born into kind of progressive Jewish families and okay, my case half Jewish, but you know, progressive on both sides and didn't have far to go. And I admire people who've made the journey. You know, and I found the same problem when I was on tour for this Orwell book. People wanted to tax me with like, how could you write about this person who is anti-Semitic and homophobic, etc. And like he was as a young man, he reflected unthinkingly the values around him from his kind of upper middle class imperialist upbringing. And then he made himself somebody really different and somebody who stopped, uh, you know, dropped a lot of his prejudices, became a great anti-imperialist and uh, I think 1984's Goldstein is a sly critique of anti-Semitism as a kind of hysteria. And, uh, you know, I just find that people talk like we're soup, we're all the ingredients of who we've ever been, uh, everything we've ever thought and did and said has all been blended together and exists as much in the present as in the past. And we're in a time where we're all learning. I often feel like this era is like a graduate seminar crash course in understanding race, gender, and so many other things in ways we didn't before. Even people who are already feminist, who are already anti-racist, already queer positive, have learned a lot in the last five years. We've found nuances and shades, thought about discrimination in more sophisticated ways, thought about liberation in more sophisticated ways. So how do we recognize that people change? Of course, most of the people we disagree with about politics and, and life don't change. It's like they were, as you put it, carved from granite, carrying whatever beliefs and values they were launched with throughout their life. Some people get better over time, some people get worse, some stay the same. It's complicated. Exactly. And the, one of the problems, I think, is that people want a one-size-fits-all set of rules so they don't have to think. And I find a lot of categorical stuff is there so you don't have to think all people like this are this way. This is how it always happens. This country is always evil. This country is always good. And of course, we have the opposite. I do think we've seen a lot of people who've gone off the rails in the past several years to become members of cults, crazy anti-vaxxers. And that includes the kind of yoga moms as well as the right wingers. And so people get worse, people get better, people stay the same, and you need a case-by-case -case basis. Jarvis's case, of course, is complicated because 
he's not going to get exonerated because he's a good person. He'll only get exonerated because he's innocent if that happens, and we hope it does. I'm glad you brought us back to Jarvis. Jarvis Masters is innocent of that murder. That seems pretty clear, but lots of people in prison are actually guilty. I learned about this from Jody Armour, the USC um, law professor. Most people in prison really did do terrible things to other people. Of course, those people also had terrible things done to them as children when they were growing up. Some of them have changed. Many of them have served 41 years, like Jarvis Masters. But what about the people who are not innocent? We also need to create ways for them to acknowledge the damage they caused so they can make amends and reparations and rejoin society. My friend, Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg, has a wonderful book coming out called On Reparations and Repair, looking at the fact that Judaism actually has a really great systematic way to repent, make amends, really change and try and respond to the harm you've caused, which is very different than Christian forgiveness, which is often the victim being told to forgive the person who's harmed them, whether or not anything has changed, and it can become a kind of bullying. And so we don't really have that. And of course, prisons exist almost entirely as punitive systems now. And a lot of very young people go into them. And I think you know, are degraded, are harmed, are traumatized, and sometimes taught to be worse people than they were when they went in. But the prison system, even in its language, correctionals, uh, you know, the correctional system, penitentiary, etc., the language suggests that they're trying to change people. But it doesn't seem like in the tough on crime era, that remains of interest very much. I do know there are prisons that have therapists and groups and processes that do try and help people, you know, evolve. But overall, it just feels like we've had to kind of throw them and, you know, let them rot as a system. And also no way to receive people when they come out and help them make that transition often enough. What is this argument about how repenting is part of a Jewish tradition? Uh, according to Rabbi, Rabbi Danya, who knows her Talmud and is a great scholar, there are these very clear steps and processes for people to uh, apologize, make amends, show that they've changed. And it's really a series of steps before you're ready to be received back as not the person who did the harm. And it's kind of wonderful because it is systematic, it's clear. It's actually very generous and it suggests that you may have done harm, but you don't have to be that person forever. But it's also tough where it's not like Christianity where it's like, oh, but then, you know, something miraculous happened and the Lord forgave me. It's like, you know, Christian forgiveness is often about your relationship to God, not to the person you've harmed. And then the person you've harmed is often being told to forgive you whether or not anything has changed. And I've heard from a lot of women raised in conservative Christian circles about that kind of bullying that you have to forgive your husband's violence or adultery or whatever, because that's what it means to be a good Christian woman. And good Christian man doesn't necessarily mean that he has to make amends, repent, change. So Judaism has that process. I think American society as a whole doesn't. But this exists in much more informal ways. The way that we look at people and judge them you know, I sometimes feel social media is just our way of having recreational judging on strangers <laughs> far and wide. 
And, uh, you know, we don't really look at, are they the same person? Am I the same person I was 30 years ago? I know I've learned so much, even in the last five and 10 years. So we really need processes to recognize that people can change, that they do change, to support change when it happens, to encourage it. And I think part of encouraging it is people feeling like I can show up as no longer the person who said or did that dumb or harmful thing who learned and moved on. And there's a political dimension to this too, isn't there? I think that the left and the right have different categories of people they're eager to forgive. Of course, the right can't forgive high status white men, their sexual transgressions, violence, corruption, etc. fast enough, as we've seen with Donald Trump, serial sexual abuser. The left, I think, has been great in recognizing that prison is a completely horrific situation, that we should forgive people who committed violent crimes in many cases. But on the other hand, a lot of people on the left will not forgive someone who told an off-color joke or echoed the conventional views of their time when it was a less enlightened time in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation, etc. And that's why I reference the culture that most of us grew up in is that, you know, you can still see it when you go back to watch those movies that you might have fond memories of. One version of this essay talked about Purple Rain, a movie I utterly loved when it came out in 1984. And when I watched it again, the female protagonist, Apollonia, was so humiliated so repeatedly for laughs, I just found it unbearable and stopped watching. And it was fascinating to me, like, how had I so sublimated my own trauma as a young woman to find a movie that abused another young woman for laughs, so palatable, so that I enjoyed what was wonderful about it, which was Prince and his music, and didn't mind the other stuff, or didn't even feel like I had the the right and the equipment to object to the other stuff. And then, of course, I watched it during the pandemic on my laptop and had to stop. We're a lot more insistent that everybody deserves respect now. We've had kind of a kindness revolution and maybe a, a dignity revolution and believe that everybody need everybody deserves respect. And that was not at all the case of the culture not very long ago. And of course, it's still not the case of right-wing culture. I, and I, well, I think a lot of us will never forget Trump making fun of the disabled reporter mocking women for their, you know, their, what kinds of bodies they were for not being young. So it's all changing and we're all changing with it, you know? And so part of the question is how do we recognize people have changed? How do we help people change, or, you know, or help ourselves change? And uh, how do we really repair harm that's been done by ourselves or by others? Rebecca Solnit wrote about her friend Jarvis Masters and about how people change for the New York Times. Thank you, Rebecca. You're welcome, John. Republicans have made the teaching of American history a key battleground in their culture war against Democrats in the upcoming elections, especially the history of the American Revolution. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught 
history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board, and where he wrote recently about the book Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Eric, welcome back. Yes, nice to talk to you, John. Well, historians for years tried hard to get beyond the academy and reach the public with their work. And now they have, but not in the way they had hoped. Uh, what exactly are the Republicans doing to make American history a political issue? And why exactly has the revolution, 1776 and all that, become such a big deal for them? Yeah, it is kind of mysterious. Uh, now, it's not the only time that there have been public controversy, very heated controversy over the teaching of history. Uh, you and I both remember back in the 90s, the so-called history wars where Gary Nash, a uh, UCLA professor, had pioneered producing a new set of standards for teaching of history, which were denounced by Lynn Cheney and other conservatives as not patriotic enough. Too much emphasis on the negative slavery, things like that. Who wants to hear about that? Yeah, it's too boring, too, too depressing. We want to hear about how great everything is in America and always was. So that went on for a good, you know, several years. There was, I, I was sort of involved in it. And very, I debated Lynn Cheney on the radio once, and it was a total disaster. <laughs> okay, I mean, in terms of intellectual content, because yeah. all she did was yell and interrupt me. And so I decided I'd do the same thing. But anyway, the point is, uh, what's going on now comes from a number of sources, but something called critical race theory. States are actually passing laws banning the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. If you ask the members of the legislature, well, what is this? They always say, well, I don't exactly know, but it's bad. It has to do with race. That's pretty clear, critical race theory. And Republicans are sort of latched on this idea that white students are being told they're guilty because of slavery. And they have to feel bad and shameful about the fact that there was slavery in this country. Or another way of attacking it, in fact, in Florida, I think the law they've passed says that they must teach that America is an exceptional country. Uh, American exceptionalism is now a kind of public orthodoxy. Exceptional in what way or ways? Uh, that is up to the teacher. I mean, in my U.S. history textbook, I do say we are an exceptional country. We have more gun uh, murders than any other country in the world. We have a much weaker uh, social safety net than any advanced country in the world. There are many ways that we are exceptional. Now you're making me depressed. <laughs> I know. Nobody is to be told they're guilty or shameful because of that. But anyway, what's really, you know, they're using this to as part of the general backlash, which has occurred, well, since the civil rights movement, but reinvigorated by the presidency of Obama. And also, by the way, many historians are emphasizing the centrality of slavery in American history, not to make students feel guilty. There isn't a single student in a public room, in a public classroom who actually own slaves nowadays, right, in the United <laughs> States. So they have nothing to feel guilty about. That's something that uh, past generations did. But uh, it's important to learn this history 
to understand the racial turmoil that the country has gone through in the last few years, especially after the murder of George Floyd. But they, Republicans have found this is a winning issue in a weird sort of way. Uh, and uh, so they're going to continue to um, badger schools and teachers about what they ought to be saying about American history. And it's not just a fight over local school boards. Uh, Donald Trump himself, as I recall, towards the end of his presidency, got involved in this, too. Well, he uh, uh, put together something called the 1776 Commission, uh, which issued a little report about American history, complaining, that, again, that teachers were not teaching American history in a celebratory manner anymore. And um, yeah, Trump thought this was a way to get some votes. Uh, the 1776 Commission, mostly composed of conservative academics, issued a little report, very brief, of 30 pages or so, again, about how great the Constitution is, how great the Declaration of Independence is, and everything good since then just flows out of the, those founding documents. You know, what's really at stake here is a number of more substantive questions, such as well, how much should we be locked into the vision of the founders of the country? I mean, the courts debate that all the time in terms of original intent and everything. How should we understand the relationship of slavery to the American Revolution, to the early republic? How do we deal with the fact that so many of our revered you know, public figures, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, you name them, were slave owners, even when they spoke about the universality of liberty and things like that. Those are important questions to be discussed in a classroom with a competent teacher that can really enlighten students about the complexities of history. It I don't think like Trump was interested in the complexities of history, though. No, it seems like Trump's 1776 commission and the other Republicans who are on this bandwagon think that if you teach about 1776 and the American Revolution, then you will get a patriotic, optimistic, celebratory history of American freedom. But historians have for a long time taught that 1776 was a lot more complicated than that. Well, Woody Holton's book, uh, which you mentioned, Liberty is Sweet, certainly takes that view. This is not a great celebration of the founding fathers. In fact, very few of the founders come out looking particularly good. George Washington, well, Woody doesn't have much respect for Washington as a military strategist. Uh, he wanted to just storm British lines with his troops and in a heroic way, which luckily his other generals told him would be suicide. Uh, and he eventually didn't do that. He was a major land speculator, says Woody, the gold standard of speculators, and um, you know was in the revolution not just for uh, ideological uh, purposes, but to make some money. Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, obviously, we don't need to say, was a major slave owner. Uh, so uh, it's it's complicated. That any good history is complicated. Uh, but what what's interesting about Woody Holton's book, I think, and what's admirable about it is that it tries to create a coherent account here. Both well-known people, famous founders, they're in there, but also ordinary men and women, Native Americans, African Americans, all sorts of people in the society and how they affected the coming of the revolution, the making of a new republic uh, in the 1780s. In other words, it's, he's a greatly expanded the cast of characters 
who ought to be considered when you're trying to paint a portrait of a country going through a major uh, revolution. So the question here is not just how did Americans achieve independence from Britain, but who should rule a new and independent country in, in North America? And the most fascinating part to me of this new way of telling the story, relatively new, is that the Revolutionary War did not unite Americans. Uh, it exacerbated all kinds of tensions and conflicts. So, and that, Yeah, that's it, was, it was a civil war within the American colonies, as well as a struggle for independence from Great Britain. I think where Holton really does blaze a new path is by really trying to integrate, let's say, Native Americans, their role in the revolution. You know, a lot of Native American soldiers fought on both sides uh, in the revolution, but they, you know, they were fighting mainly to maintain their control of, of the land, their ancestral land, which was constantly being overrun by white settlers and the revolution was a disaster for Native Americans because the removal of their British allies just opened the door to massive uh, intrusions on their lands once the new independent United States you know, was founded. And you emphasize in your piece for the nation that Native Americans were also, in a way, a crucial cause of the Civil War because of a disagreement between the British Empire and the colonists about them. Yeah, the, the so-called proclamation of 1763, which the British issued after the what we call the French and Indian Wars here, which led to the expulsion of the French from North America. What happened was the British said, look, it's too damned expensive to have fighting going on all, uh, all along the frontier, as has been happening, as white settlers move on to Indian land, there's constant battles. British troops have to go there to just keep the combatants apart. It costs too much money. Let's get the colonists to pay for some of this. We're going to pass a stamp act. That sounds like a good idea. Let's, nobody can object to that. And we'll have a stamp act and we'll raise money. But that's the point. This was one of the key steps on the road to revolution the resistance of the Stamp Act, but the motive for that, that law was to raise money to station British troops on the frontier, not to take away the liberties of Americans, but to prevent American colonists and Native Americans from always being at war with each other. So yeah, there you have a case where Native American tenacity and holding on to their own lands is a significant cause of the growing breach between the American colonists and the British. The most controversial part of the new histories of the revolution is the argument made in the 1619 project launched by the New York Times now a couple of years ago, that protecting slavery was a significant motivation for many American patriots, especially in colonies where the slave plantation was the foundation of the economy. Now, we've known for a long time that slaves fled by the thousands to areas the British controlled. What else do we need to know about this? What new evidence does Woody Holton have about the role of slavery? Well, in well it's causing? interesting. It's interesting what Woody does because he does believe that this, you know, Lord Dunmore, the British governor of Virginia in 1775, issued this order welcoming runaway slaves into the British army. In other words, if they got to his forces in Virginia, he'd free them and make them soldiers. 
the white colonists were pretty annoyed about this, to say the least. It was an invitation to thousands of slaves to, to run away to British lines, which eventually many of them did. In fact, Jefferson condemns this in the Declaration of Independence as just show how low the British were, you know, in their efforts to suppress American independence. What's interesting to me as a scholar who has read a lot of Woody's work is that actually he had written about this previously, but he sort of exalted the British as defenders of black liberty. Now he is a plague on all your houses. The American colonists certainly wanted to keep their slaves, but the British were not acting in during the revolution and offering freedom to slaves. They were not doing that because of humanitarian motivations. It was simply to weaken the labor available, you know, the amount of labor available to the other side. And he shows the British were just as unscrupulous in dealing with runaway slaves as the Americans, that some of them welcomed Lord Cornwallis, welcomed blacks behind their lines and then kicked them out eventually. And they were recaptured when they became a burden to his army. And so, again, it, it doesn't seem like anyone is very heroic in Woody Holton's uh, account of the revolution. British leaders, American leaders, the Native Americans, I say, do not gain very much. Many Blacks do gain their freedom through the revolution, uh, but it's not because of the revolutionaries, it's because they managed to run away and many British commanders did recognize their freedom. Overall, the balance sheet of people gaining and losing liberty as a result of the revolution uh, is on the negative side, really, in this book. Yeah, could you tell us a little more about that? That's kind of a startling fact for those who want to celebrate the American Revolution, that the achievement of freedom from Britain affected the different groups in the colonies differently. And for many of them, this was not really an expansion of their own freedom. Yeah, well, uh, Holton, go, at the very end of the book, gives you a little uh, balance sheet of uh, who benefited and who didn't benefit from uh, American independence. He feels that a lot of ordinary white farmers did not benefit. They were saddled with debt. They were The 1780s was a period of economic downturn in the American nation. There were those like in Shays' Rebellion who actually refused to pay their taxes or close down courts so that they wouldn't be foreclosed by uh, merchants or others who had loaned them money. And also, Holton sees the Constitution as a conservative document meant to keep popular ferment in check, under control, with a stronger central government, so that efforts by uh, ordinary farmers to uh, improve their condition faced a federal government not very sympathetic to that. But then you get others, of course. Women didn't gain very much, although some participated in the struggle for independence. Ultimately, they didn't gain very much from American independence. As I said, Native Americans, a disaster. They suffered the worst because they, they were now just, you know, there was no alternative power like the British to help them against the westward spread of the American population, the free American population. And then you have blacks. He's, more blacks probably benefited than uh, others, but still the fact is there were more slaves in the United States in 1790 than there had been in 1776. And finally, I want to ask about the title of Woody Holton's book, Liberty is Sweet. Seems like this is something that 
right-wing school boards would love to make the center of the American history curriculum. Liberty is sweet. Where does that come from? Is that Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> it sounds very good. Uh, it is very good. And liberty is sweet. And uh, all sorts of groups were trying to gain liberty as they saw it in the revolution. But this is from a letter by one of George Washington's cousins, Lund Washington. And it was not about Americans sacrificing to gain freedom from the yoke of British tyranny. That's not what this little quote is about. Lund Washington wrote a letter to George saying, you know, you better watch out because once this, if a war begins, your slaves are gonna start running away. You're not gonna be able to keep control of your slaves. They've heard the talk of liberty. They know that liberty is sweet and they're gonna make every effort they can to actually uh, gain liberty for themselves, even though it means running away from the father of our country, uh, George, George Washington. So it's an ironic title for Woody Holton's book in that it is really commenting on the role of slavery in the revolution rather than the hero heroism of the American colonists who struck for independence. The point here is that you can develop a congratulatory, celebratory account of the revolution if you want to do it. But to do it, you've got to look at the revolution the way Holton does, and particularly look at how people who were not intended to do this seized upon the idea of liberty for their own purposes. And the African-American slaves are the major uh, example of this. Unlike the, the founding fathers, the slaves believed that freedom was for everybody, not just for white people, for everybody. They took the idea of liberty and expanded it to, to at least as an aspiration, to include everybody in this, uh, in this nation. And in that sense, the slaves are the and their descendants are the inheritors of the ideals of the revolution, the ideal of freedom as a universal entitlement rather than something just for white Americans. That's what we ought to be teaching in every classroom. And that should make people proud of the American Revolution. Eric Foner, he wrote about the many American revolutions in a review of Woody Holton's new book, Liberty is Sweet. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Eric. Uh, very nice to talk to you as usual, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? 
Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.